0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. How many gatherings do you really enjoy? Certainly not meetings at work. But what about social events? How many times have you felt awkward at a party, an event, or even a gathering of friends? How often have you had the feeling that everyone else was invited for dinner and you were only invited for cocktails? And if you were the host, you certainly made sure that all the napkins and silverware was just right. But what about the inner workings of the gathering? How did you prepare in a world where networking and face-to-face gatherings are the rare exception to being transfixed by screens large and small? Shouldn't we pay more attention to those face-to-face encounters? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Priya Parker. Priya Parker is the founder of Thrive Labs, where she helps activists, elected officials, executives, and educators create transformative gatherings. She's trained in the field of conflict resolution and has worked on race relations on American college campuses and in the Arab world. It is my pleasure to welcome Priya Parker here to talk about her book, The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. Priya, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Has it gotten harder to get people together today, to get people to relax in a gathering, because so much of our world, so much of our interaction and what we do is kind of in the virtual world today?
1: Absolutely. I think we're suffering from a crisis of connection, not only because of um, the kind of the speed at which we're all doing things um, and the technology that distracts us. Um, from each other in, in kind of in person, IRL. Um, you know, there's studies that show right now that uh the amount of time over the course of a minute that people make eye contact with each other, even when they're in person, has gone down because they're, they keep looking at their phones. <laughs> um, and, and so once you actually have people in the room, one of the things that I've, that I've seen and one of the reasons I wrote this book is because <clears throat> most of the wisdom on gathering, um, for a variety of reasons, has focused and kind of been outsourced to um, experts on food and experts on you know, etiquette and experts on... Um, floral arrangements and kind of the things of gathering. Um, But the things that actually, and while while those things create an environment, um, I wanted to write a book that focuses on the reason why we actually come together, which is the people.
0: And in making that happen, how much of the responsibility do you see as being on the individuals who are part of the gathering to adjust to the realities today? And how much is on the host or or the convener, if you will, with respect to creating an environment that is functional today?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I wrote the book and I Call it the art of gathering, not the art of hosting. Um, in part because I believe guests can make a huge difference in the, you know, in the quality of a gathering and the quality of their presence. Um, and that said, the host can make a, the host themselves whether it's for a work meeting or whether it's for a back-to-school night, if you're a teacher or an educator and thinking about, what do I do with these parents, you know, for the hour that I have them, um, have a huge, huge role in not just creating an environment but creating a design and a structure that helps people connect with each other and connect with the purpose of the, of the gathering.
0: To what extent is some of it the sense that people feel awkward sometimes in gatherings?
1: Absolutely. Um, and I actually think this, is, uh, this, this you know, totally normal social awkwardness and anxiety um, is something that I think whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you feel in different, you know, different levels and in different contexts. And I think, frankly, it's one of the reasons why we focus so much on, on the things of gathering, on the PowerPoint presentation or the font or the you know, AV equipment, because we feel like it's something that we can control. Um, whereas, you know, we kind of feel that we can't control people. And this is a misunderstanding of, um, of the influence that you have in a group. So I'm a conflict resolution facilitator. I work with groups. And one of the rules kind of back of the, back of the envelope kind of rules that we follow is kind of 90% of the work that is done for a meeting to prepare the people psychologically happens before anyone enters the room. And, um, and one of the things that we really focus on is, what is the invitation, you know, what is the invitation asking people to do? So one of the mistakes that we tend to make in any type of gathering is we think invitations are, con- are only f- to convey information, you know, date, time, and place. And that's kind of that's the hygiene, if you will, of an <laughs> invitation. But your invitation is an opportunity for you to begin priming people of how you actually want them to show up. Are you inviting them to a um, worn-out mom's hootenanny, a true gathering <laughs> that recently <laughs> happened, um, or are you uh, are you welcoming them or you know to your fortieth um, you know birthday party um, that is uh, you know New Orleans Escape. I, I saw an invitation. I, I looked at a lot of different invitations that I was researching, and one of them my favorite invitations was came from a guy who invited a bunch of friends to go to New Orleans for the weekend for his birthday and The invitation issued five rules in the invitation itself. Um, one of them was to talk, to commit to talking to strangers when they were down there. Um, the second was to um, po- to take photos, but no posting. The third was to make more rules. The fourth was to um, to, uh, no Shots, Only Wine. And it was a sort of playful, funny, intriguing invitation that got a lot of his friends kind of like in the spirit of this fun, different, alternative world that they were choosing to join for a short amount of time.
0: And part of it then is expectations, the expectations that people have going into any kind of gathering, be it a social gathering or a business meeting.
1: Absolutely, and part of you know every gathering, whether it's for work or for play, whether it's a wedding or whether it's a leadership retreat, has an invisible social contract. This is what I'm saying that I'm I'm this is this is kind of what I'm uh, offering, and in return you are going to you know be game, and 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 whether that's you know very simply bringing a bottle of wine or flowers to a dinner party to kind of. Offset the you know the hosting costs, um, or whether it's coming to a meeting and not being skeptical and, and being willing to follow you know somebody's lead. Regardless of what it is, we come with expectations. And most hosts, and this includes business leaders, we don't realize how much control we have between the moment of discovery from the moment the person gets the invitation to the moment they show up and not actually paying attention to priming them and to sending, um, sending things that relate to, how, to the actual gathering and how you want them to be or what you want them to bring is a huge lost opportunity. Um, one of my favorite characters and, that I interviewed for this book, I interviewed 100 characters and 100 people all over the world who gather in extreme ways. And one of them as a choreographer for Circus du Soleil. And he told me about how he creates these incredible experiences, you know, for the audience. But my favorite example that he shared, Michelle Lapre, is he said he um, wanted to throw an end-of-the-year kind of Christmas holiday party for his friends. He had been touring for a long time and hadn't had ch- a chance to even decorate his tree. And so he... Uh, And the invitation doesn't have to be complicated. He literally sent an email to 12 friends. They didn't all know each other. He said, please come. I want to celebrate the end of the year with you next week. Um, If you can just send me two photos of moments of happiness from this past year, I would be so grateful. So he primed them, and he had them actually think about moments of happiness, dig through the photos. Everybody sent one. They were intrigued. And when they showed up, he had printed out all of the photos and made those into the ornaments that he decorated the tree with. The 12 strangers come in, and they delight to see the moments of happiness from their past year as well as each other's. And it completely shifted but also focused this lovely, beautiful evening.
0: To what extent, though, does that create a situation where there's always comparison? So-and-so was able to do a better party, a better gathering— And in this time in which people have so many options, so many things to do, and and as you've written about, they're always afraid of missing out on something else, it makes it harder and harder to create that kind of environment that people are comfortable in.
1: I think that people are going to compete no matter what. And all I'm saying is I'd rather have them compete about making the most meaningful gathering than having the best food.
0: How do we define meaningful in that sense?
1: So for me, I mean, it's it's basically the things that people place value on and and what I think people should place value on in their gatherings, um, and not from a protocol or etiquette perspective, but simply that there's so much going on in our world right now, there's so much going on in our, you know, family life, that gatherings are an opportunity to connect with each other in an authentic way, to support each other, to imagine different ways of being. And so what, all, I'm, all I'm arguing for in this book is to create you know, board meetings and, um, and PTA meetings and town halls and dinner parties where you're spending time figuring out how to get people to talk about what is really going on in their life, what they care about, um, and to kind of take off their masks so that they can connect in a way that will you know, heal them and heal their communities.
0: As you talk to all these people in, in reporting this book, what were the things that stood out for people that made gatherings of any kind memorable?
1: Um, so one I mean, one is uh, pop-up rules and the rise of pop-up rules, and um, as opposed to etiquette. So when people made, I mentioned the invitation before about New Orleans, when people make one simple rule that kind of changes the dynamic in a playful way, people remember it. So... For example, a birthday party, this actually came from an um, a, a experienced designer named Anthony Rocco, um, and he created this rule for an underground secret society in San Francisco that has recently sort of imploded, but the rule is amazing, which is um, you can't serve yourself, you can't pour yourself a drink. It's a very simple rule, and what it basically enables is, but other people, you can pour other people a drink, and they can pour you a drink, and it's this one very simple rule that transforms a gathering because it gives people permission to take care of each other. Um, uh, another rule, you know, one of the gatherings I studied was the Dinner in Blanc, and it's this sort of global phenomenon where, in different cities around the world, one night a year, there's this massive—you know, 5,000 people show up in white in a public space, have a dinner party, and then leave. Um, and people remember experiences that are different, um, you know, that disrupt, that are unexpected, um, and in which they are uh, connecting with each other in a way that, um, that matters. And particularly, the last thing I'll just say is we carry each other's stories with us. And so in any gathering, whether it's a meeting or any other type of um, event, to ask people more for their stories and their experiences rather than their opinions. Because you can hear their opinions through their experiences, but it's their experiences that actually shape them. And we can carry those memories of those stories a lot better than remembering somebody's opinion about something.
0: And how does that relate to and transcribe to business gatherings and business meetings?
1: Well, first of all, I think we overgather in the business context. Mm-hmm. Um, we, spend, we have kind of come to a point where if we have a problem or a need, we assume that a meeting will fix it. And, um a lot, and so the first thing is to actually get very clear on why are you why are you spending people's very limited resources you know coming together to, and um and if you're if it's just to share information, unless it's, you know, particularly sensitive information, just put it in an email. Um, And so in our work meetings, I think one is when you actually have a purpose to gather, and it's a very specific purpose, you know what your desired outcome of that meeting is, um, people are much more likely to engage because ideally you've also then chosen them because they relate to that purpose. Um, A second thing in business meetings is we tend to de-risk all of our business meetings, whether because we're scared of how it might go or you don't want to embarrass somebody or... um, and it's, and it's very problematic for, our, for the life of meetings. And so one of the things that I work with as companies is to help them face together in safe ways the conversations that they've been avoiding. And when you do that, you have fantastic gatherings.
0: To what extent are gatherings in the workplace today sometimes both business-related and in a way social-related because... People are so siloed in most of their work situations today because of email, because of technology, that when they come together, it's sometimes the only opportunity to connect with each other.
1: Absolutely. And so one of the um, things to do as you're hosting meetings, or even as a guest, you know, guests have a lot of power to kind of help correct or, you know, course correct if something isn't going well, um, is to figure out in the first 5% of your meeting to have a moment where people can connect together and to not just think that, oh, this is niceties, we can skip it. It actually affects the outcome of the the matter at hand. So um, one of my favorite studies shows that um, when, you know, when surgeons came together with first surgery, surgeons and then their assistants and the, uh, they're sort of teams of five or six, they tend to want to, you know, get, you know, straight to the cutting. And when they actually pause ahead of time and introduce each other, introduce themselves, say their name, say something, and go through a checklist of other kind of things right before, right before they actually perform surgery, the error rate of the surgery has dropped drastically. Mm-hmm. And this is because When something goes wrong in surgery, which it's a very complicated process, it often does, people have already spoken once. They've become real people behind their surgical masks, and they're more likely to speak up if something goes wrong, particularly if they're junior in the hierarchy.
0: Is this something that is indigenous to our culture, to American culture? Is this a global problem? Do other countries and other cultures deal with these issues differently?
1: (laughs) It's a beautiful question. Um, You know, different cultures have different ways of gathering. And um, some cultures are much more collective cultures. So um, one of my favorite books is The Geography of Thought. Um, and, and the author looks at how we train our children to think about the collective versus the individual. And so, you know, at least uh, Asian cultures, for example, tend to focus much more on the collective um, rather than the, right, uh, the focus on the individual. And one of the things that's happening, I think, more and more um, is that as we're starting to mix, and this is true, you know, in every country, every country is facing immigration or welcoming immigration, as we are starting in our workplaces to come from different subcultures, Um, we are losing our rituals of gathering, in part because, you know, if you're grew up Jewish or Mormon or Christian, you're not going to gather in the same way when you're in, you know, quote, unquote, mixed company. And so I think in part, we haven 't yet created our new ways of being together when we come from different traditions, and so I think there 's a bit of a vacuum um, and one of some of the best uh, some of the best kind of gathering cultures are ones where the communities are still intact. Um, we can learn from them, but that doesn't mean that uh, you know we go back to a, to monoculture so um, i spoke with I ended up speaking with a lot of uh, a number of different rabbis but also just a number of characters ha- turned out as I spoke to them happened to come from a Jewish tradition and and the Jewish or Ju- Ju- Judaic tradition has very very powerful forms of gathering um and it's one of the reasons as you know as as the kind of Jewish um, people are spread all over the world to continue to build and create community, not just in their, um, you know, synagogues, because, but but in their homes and all of the kind of ways of gathering are embedded kind of into the DNA of the of the culture in a way um, that we can like, deeply learn from.
0: And isn't that really the core of of much of what we're talking about? That in our modern society that those traditions have essentially evaporated, that, that most traditions have evaporated, so that it becomes more incumbent to create, I won't say artificial traditions, but, but new reasons to gather, new ways to gather, hence what you were talking about with respect to the, the ideas that people come up with for gatherings and for parties and for, for events. Yes, I'll give, you,
1: I'll, give, so I'll give you an example. I um, have a friend, and, and she's spoken about this, Publicly, she um, or she said I could share with it. So she is half Egyptian, half German. Her father last year passed away. Um, she lives in New York, and her father lived in Germany. And um, she went to Germany to go for, to go to the funeral. And everybody at the funeral was from her hometown. And she came back. She lives in New York City. She came back, and she felt that um, there was this disconnect between this very kind of painful, you know traumatic experience that she had, of, as anybody has, is the death of a parent. But her adult friends in this context don't know her father. And so she felt very strange of what I wanted host, I wanted to let my community know what I'm going through and grieve with them because these are my people, but they didn't know my father. And so she said, came to me and she said, what do I do? And so we kind of designed a gathering for her that, um, that was a mix of different traditions that she invited um, thirty or forty of her dearest friends to come and so that they could share um, learn and share and, and and be together and she shared a story, she stared shared stories about her father and showed us photos of him. But then she began to just talk about her role as a daughter and and part of the um, Part of the elements of being in New York was that no one knew her as a daughter, but it was a very important part of her identity. And as she spoke, and we sat, we kind of sat together in a circle. Um, everybody else actually could also relate to it because we also are daughters or sons, and we also, particularly in New York City, most people are transplants. And we, we could. She created a space by being courageous to talk about these things, where we each started to think about our identity with our parents and the death of our parents. Um, and it was this beautiful kind of made-up gathering. Um, that we invented.
0: It, it's an interesting point. And how all this relates to diversity and, and sort of trying to go against sometimes our instinct for tribalism and to only be around people like us. Talk a little bit about mm-hmm. that as it relates to gatherings.
1: Well, you know, all gatherings in a way are, uh, gatherings are a form of power. It's a, it's a, and it's a form that anybody can gather. I truly believe that. It's literally getting two more people and come, having them come for anything. It's free um but part of the power of gathering is you're implicitly asking who do i want to be here who do i want to create a space for to belong to and um and sometimes it's deeply appropriate to gather with people who are you know like you and you want to be with and 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 just kind of celebrate with and sometimes you want to activate diversity in a very meaningful way so one of the um groups that i love that i um read about in my in my research is a as a uh, Retirement community is a senior, senior home in, um, in Ohio called Judson Manor. And um, they brought together um, retirees or senior citizens um, and young music students to live together from the local, local music college and they activated the diversity of age, but it was a specific activation. It wasn't you know, anybody who could come and volunteer. It wasn't non-music students, at least at the beginning. And through they offered free housing to music students in exchange for them to play concerts and, and volunteer and literally befriend and connect with these older people. It's this beautiful experience in co-living that activates diversity. Um, and part of the reason it works is because you're bringing together two specific populations Um, that need each other but may not realize that they do.
0: As we have less and less time in our lives these days and and the pressures on our time are so much greater, how does that impact all of this, do you think?
1: It impacts it hugely, um, and in part because we think you know, at work, you kind of, many meetings you kind of have to go to, um, but in the evenings or the weekends, you know, I have two children, like, I, you know, we're exhausted half the time, um, and, and so what ends up kind of going is the time that we spend together, you know, in real life, um, and yet it's the antidote that we actually need. And so part of what, and I think part of the reason we don't gather is because we have an assumption that it has to be perfect and, you know, that we have to cook for days or we have to have the right china or we have to have the right apartment or we're waiting for, you know, the right convening space. And, and I, I'm writing this book in part to say, no, 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 no. Like, get together in a park and have everybody bring sandwiches, um, but ask a beautiful question.
0: Right. As you say, it's sort of the, the Martha Stewart influence really works against gathering in that sense.
1: Absolutely. It's a, well, it's a very specific assumption and point of view that focuses on um, things as the majority of uh, the reason of what creates a special experience. Um, and, uh, you know, no disrespect to Martha Stewart, but I think it's actually um, distorted our lens and our assumptions of what we're actually craving when we come together. And, you know, Pinterest and Instagram and all of these kind of visual um, mediums also make you want to create a beautiful space um, it's very hard visually to capture meaning, you know, a conversation between people. Um, the best conversations in the world shouldn't probably be recorded for people to listen to, because part of the reason people are willing to share, you know, intimate parts of themselves is because there's a choice to have privacy around it. Um, and so, and so we tend to, um, think that A specific world of hosting is inaccessible to us unless we have the right things, and it's just radically not true.
0: And and as evidence of that, I suppose, the best example is that if you ask people to remember their most memorable gatherings, their most memorable encounters, it's generally about the people they met, the conversations they've had, and not necessarily the place settings. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think one of the things that um, has happened is we've, you know, another kind of old adage is um, I show, you know, we show love through food. And that's true in many cultures. Um, but you shouldn't only show love through food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you spend hours and hours and hours making the, like, perfect Sunday hash. Um, and then everyone feels, you know, lonely and isolated from each other and offended by what each other's saying. You know, love should expand beyond the food.
0: Priya Parker. Her book is The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. It's just out from Riverhead Books. Priya, I thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a treat.
0: Thank you.